A few years ago now, when our church was preparing to go to uh, San Felipe del Progreso in, in Mexico, uh, I, like many of you, tried to learn Spanish by starting Duolingo, you know, the app on your phone, and you can, um, yeah, you can practice along and play along and, you know, do all that stuff. And um, I was practicing some vocabulary, and I could throw some basic sentences together. And this last summer, I passed my 800 days in a row of practicing Duolingo. Yeah, no, I was telling Patrick this story last week in brief, and so I was at Jalapenos, it must have been in June, I was there with a friend having lunch and I thought, this is the day, I'm gonna try, I'm gonna try to speak Spanish to the camarera, you know, so that she's, she's coming and, and, and I've got like my first couple sentences in the back of my head already pre-scripted, you know, like do my buenos dias, you know, like que tal, like how you doing? And, and then I, you know, I anticipated she was gonna ask, oh, I'm fine and you and I, sure enough, that's what happened. And, and I said, oh, bien, and then I had like some cool comeback about how beautiful the day was. I thought that's extra points. That's like 800 day streak kind of sentence. And then I thought she would like, oh, what would you like today? But no, a floodgate of Spanish phrases. And I was like overwhelmed. I could make out maybe a third of the words. And I might be able to like decode part of them, but I couldn't formulate another sentence. And finally I just said, lo siento. And she totally bailed me out in gracious English, and it was all fine, but I learned some things in that moment. First, I was just so humbled, right? I don't know what I expected, but humbled that after 800 days of learning things about Spanish, learning some vocabulary and rules of grammar and pronunciation, I am still a long way from being proficient. Number two, I learned that if I want to be more proficient and confident in my Spanish, I need to practice Spanish in the real world. Like the app is fine, but I need to actually converse with people. And third, I learned that connections with Spanish speakers only grow when we practice in real life, like when we try. You know, my, my waitress that day at Jalapenos was awesome. She did not roll her eyes at me or make me feel bad. She went out of her way to express appreciation for my attempts to practice and to connect. Now, all three of these lessons are true of pretty much anything in life. Apply it to music or physical things or whatever it is that you're doing. But I really wanted to, to talk about those things because they're going to apply directly to my sermon today. All three of these lessons have to do with following Jesus well. We can go to church for 800 days, 800 Sundays in a row, or 80 years in a row, and still find ourselves floundering in the real world, wondering why we're not more fluent in the ways of faith, hope, and love. Doesn't the real world humble you? Like when you go to work, or like when you're in your family, or pretty much anywhere, like it's humbling. Like, dang, I'm not very much like Jesus, and I'm like... 50 years old, six years old. So I've been doing this a long time. Why aren't I more proficient? <laughs> if we want to grow in a living faith that matters, only the fits and starts of practice in real life are going to get traction. And we have a God who does not demand perfection. He does not demand feelings of deep faith. For all of us that struggle with our faith, Jesus never said anything that you had to have rich, deep faith in order to be a Christian, okay? We have a God who doesn't demand those things. We have a God who's gracious, 
who says in the scriptures that a minuscule amount of faith, a mustard seed amount of faith is sufficient for you and I to reap the entire benefits of a relationship with God and forgiveness of sin and life everlasting. That's really good news. I'm telling you right now what's coming in my sermon, but I derive these ideas from the scripture that we're going to look at tonight. We're going to be looking at the book of Jonah, because we're in that series right now, but I want to do some practicing other than just reading this text. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to move over here, and I'm going to narrate the story. I know we've got some kids up here, but I want all ages to be willing to do this. So what I'm going to need is a Jonah character. Uh, Caleb Epps would be a good Jonah. You want to do that, Jonah? All right. So Caleb is our Jonah. Just, I guess, stand here, because you're like the star or the villain, depending how you look at it. I'm going to need some wind and waves. And a group of you who, uh, it could be half of you if you want, but whoever wants to be wind and waves, come over here. Hey, the quicker you go, the faster the sermon will get done. I'm going to need at least 10 people, wind and waves. You're going to do stuff when it says the wind and the sea and all that. You're, you're going to do, do your arms or some sound effects. More wind and waves. Okay. Then I'm going to need the crew, the crew of the boat over here. So if you want to be a pagan for about five minutes, come on over, pagan crew. Uh, C3, where are you at? Come on. Um, oh, <laughs> awesome. Okay. So the, you guys are going to be the boat. You're going to be the crew. And let's have Titus, would you want to be the captain? There's one little scene where there's a captain and you'll, you'll get to interact with, with Jonah here. Any more crew? I need a couple. Sophia and Zoe. No, too comfortable. Let's do this. <laughs> Okay, Elsa, you want to play? Okay. All right, so we're just going to build a, a Jonah. So don't look at me, look at them. And y'all just, and also when it comes to throwing him overboard, please don't hurt Caleb. Okay. Okay. All right, here we go. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go up to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up against me. But Jonah, dun, 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 he rose up to flee. Give me some, yes, flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And so he goes down to Joppa and he found a ship which was going to Tarshish and he paid the fare there. And he went down with them from Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became very afraid, and everyone cried out to their God, and, and they, they hurled the cargo which was in the ship into the sea, and it lightened it for them. But Jonah had gone below. You can lay down. Okay. He laid down and he fell asleep because he didn't care about anyone but himself. That's not in there. Okay. So the captain approached him and said, how is it that you're sleeping? Get up. Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we won't perish. Each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots. Like, roll some dice. Okay. Come, let us cast lots so we can learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Ooh. <laughs> then they said, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? 
What is your occupation? Where have you come from? What is your country? What people are you from? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the crew became greatly frightened. They said to him, how could you do this? For they knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you so that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great shame, calamity has come upon me. They, they really wanted to do that, but there's a step here first. They, they rowed desperately before they threw him overboard to return to land, but they could not because the sea was becoming even greater. Oh my goodness. Then they called on the Lord and they, they said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on behalf of this man. And do not put innocent blood on us for you, O Lord, have done as you've pleased. So now they picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea, which was raging, and then it stopped raging. <laughs> then the crew feared the Lord greatly. They worshiped and offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows to the Lord, to Yahweh. Or as the message says, the sailors were impressed no longer terrified by the sea, but in awe of the Lord. They worshiped God, offered a sacrifice, and made vows. The word of the Lord, thank your actors. Thanks, everyone. Now, if I were to put before you a prophet of God, a person who heard the voice of God, was a student of scripture, and who knew the amazing story of God and his covenant faithfulness to the Israelites. If I were to take that person and put him before you, and then I was to take a, a ship full of Gentile pagan sailors who worshiped all sorts of gods and goddesses and who had no clue who Yahweh even was, who would you guess had the stronger faith in God? Probably no brainer. You, on paper, you would probably say the prophet of God would have more faith because the other people don't even know God. How could they have faith in him? On the surface, right, that's probably where we would go. For starters, Jonah was the only one on that ship who knew the scriptures, who knew the story of God and knew the covenant that he made with Israel. He was the only one on board who could pass a Bible quiz, the only one who knew how to properly worship God, like the right way to do a sacrifice and probably the liturgy of the, uh, the, the you know, the, how, to, how to do things, how to worship the right way. He's the only one who had ever heard God speak uh, and, and given direction. He was the only one who had any shot of having the right theology on that ship. But for all Jonah's privilege of being from the right people, Israel, and being raised to know God through worship and through the scriptures, through all his experience of hearing the voice of God and being a prophet in the king's court. For all of that, Jonah 
was not practicing his faith. To be clear, in verse 9, Jonah makes a statement of identity to his faith. He says, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. And in the Bible, when it's capital L-O-R-D, all caps, that's, that's the nice way of saying Yahweh. He's saying, I fear not just God, like a general God. I fear Yahweh, the one who revealed himself to Moses, the one who made a covenant with Israel, the one who has hesed, covenant-keeping love with his people. Okay? And, and that God, whom I worship, made the sea and the dry land. If Jonah were to take a test in prophet school, he would probably pass with flying colors. But what he thinks intellectually has not made its way down into his heart and out into his practice. He identifies as a Hebrew, but he's not acting like a Hebrew. You see, a Hebrew is a person that God made a covenant with, a promise that God would bless them so that they in turn would bless the nations of the world so that the nations of the world would come to know how much God loves them and how awesome he is. But here, Jonah's identity as a Hebrew is a way of saying for him what he's against more than who he is for. He wants the benefits of being God's chosen without the vocation of being a blessing to other people. Jonah claims to fear, which is another way of saying a revere or worship. So Jonah claims to worship Yahweh. He declares that Yahweh is the God of the sea and the dry land, Again, that's all accurate intellectually, but in practice, Jonah is a fool because he's trying to run from God, from the land, onto the sea, whom this God is the God of. Jonah has a multi-year streak on Duolingo in theology, but when it comes time to live it out, he's woefully out of practice. The pagan sailors, in contrast, would fail a Hebrew theology test for sure. They don't even know Yahweh. And yet, faced with real-life circumstances and a death-dealing storm, they seek to practice what faith emerges for them. The pagan crew actually don't know much about our God, but they do have faith that if God of the God of Jonah could cause this storm because of something that Jonah had done, then that God's probably powerful enough to know how to stop that storm. And that's where they start. Observation. Their faith leads to the experience of salvation and informs their ideas and builds their faith even more. It's a, it's a circle. So they observe their experience, right? So they, first of all, they want to find out what is going on. This storm is like supernaturally big. So they cast lots. They roll dice or sticks, or we don't know exactly what lots were, something like that. Think rolling dice, and they assign everybody a number, and the numbers roll, and it's Jonah. So they take that in faith as a sign that it's Jonah's fault that the storm has come, right? So that's their experience leads them to faith. They discern the signs. They realize that Jonah is running from God. Then in verse 11, they put their faith in this new idea into practice. They seek out Jonah and they ask, what should we do? This is your fault. You're the Yahweh expert. It's happening because of you. What do you recommend, Jonah? As practicing faith. Once again, Jonah fails to practice faith. In Jonah's mind, there are only two options. 
stay on board and they all die or be tossed overboard and he dies, but they live. You know, what's interesting to me, and, and you can always tell when you're under stress, when you're not doing well, <laughs> when, you have a, when, when you have false binaries. You know, there's almost never just two options in life. And a lot of times we quickly rush into A or B. There's almost always a C or D or an E or an F too. You know, what's interesting in this is that Jonah, who knows Yahweh, is gracious and has loving kindness. It's the reason Jonah's running, because he's afraid if he goes to Nineveh, they might repent and God would forgive them, and he just can't stand that. So he knows that God is the kind who forgives people. The third way could be that Jonah says, God, I was wrong. We're going to go back. Would you make the storm stop? He could have repented, right? And then everybody's saved. But Jonah doesn't even go there. He's not practicing what he knows about his God. He's so stubborn, stuck in his ways. Jonah in this story acts more like a pagan than the sailors do. He thinks his sacrifice will appease God. That's what the pagan gods do. You have to make sacrifices because you never know what they're... The, the pagan gods didn't have like solid character. They were whimsical they were moody. They're completely made in the image of human beings. You know how you can wake up one day, you're in a great mood, the next day you're in a horrible mood and look out world. And they projected that upon their pantheon. And so whenever these bad things happen, they thought we've got we've to appease God like an angry parent or some big brother who is mad and rampaging through the living room. And like, so that's how Jonah treats Yahweh. You know what? Maybe if you toss me into the water, it'll calm down. How many times have we been out there in the world, in life, desperate, and we have this professed faith in Jesus, we say that we're followers of Jesus, but we act completely other than Jesus would. How many times do we say we trust Jesus, but in reality, we're really trusting our finances, or our expertise in some field, or our relationships to make us feel better? How many times do we say we trust Jesus for our identity, but it's really, you know, it's our work that makes us who we are or our pleasure. Trust in other things to validate us, to make us feel important, to protect our ego. How can we follow Jesus for so long and often miss him in life outside these walls or outside moments of prayer that, let's be honest, they come and they go, don't they? They come and they go. The obvious truth is that faith in Jesus isn't just intellectual, but a life to be lived. It's a life to be practiced. And what I want to offer are just two simple ways, well, um, of thinking about practicing our faith, right? And this first one's going to just be a no-brainer. It is the well-worn paths of almost 2,000 years of Christian tradition, Uh, You're doing one of them right now. You're gathering when there's all kinds of other more fun things you could be doing. You're gathering for worship. You're seeking to submit to the word of God. We're singing songs that we hope are true about God and maybe not feeling it. Maybe you don't even remember the words that you sang because you're thinking about other things, but you are practicing and it is forming us. It is forming us to sacrifice to be here. That's one of those well-worn paths. Serving others is always a practice that is Christ-like 
and will help form our character. Prayer, knowing and living the scriptures, all of these things are are well-worn practices that can help form us and shape us out there in the real world. In fact, just as a kind of an act of pedagogy, why don't we just take a minute, turn to someone next to you, and just share one way that a Christian practice, a, 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 a practice of a prayer or service or worship or anything like that has helped shape who you've become in Christ. How has it helped you um, be more like Christ? Just take a minute. When I was uh, on sabbatical this summer, it just so happened that I was traveling on quite a few of the first Sundays, and uh, Samara and I were camping together at Lake Perigen uh, about fourth week or fifth week or something like that, and I, I was just kind of like, oh, I kind of would rather just be camping, but I said, you know, let's go to church. Uh, there's a covenant church there in Twisp that I, I know the pastor, and it, you know, it's a small kind of homey church, and um, kind of quaint and whatever, and like, I was just like, this is so good. I was so encouraged just to be there and worshiping with the people of God. It really filled my cup. So that's one of those for me, like one of those well-worn practices that, uh, that was encouraging to me out, out there, outside of this context, outside of, of my real life. So, so, that's, so if we're looking at practicing faith out there, any of these well-worn paths, these positive kind of Christian activities or, or, or service in Christ's name. Those are, those are good, well-worn paths. A second way to practice our faith is not by doing more, but by pausing to recognize how Jesus is already a part of every part of your day. Joseph F. Schmidt, not Joseph Smith, sorry, uh, Joseph F. Schmidt uh, is a, uh, a counselor and spiritual director, and he wrote a book called Praying Our Experiences. And it encourages us to reflect on our day. So like if I do it in the morning, which is when I often do this exercise, I'm reflecting on the 24 hours prior or the week prior, if I've skipped some days, because I skip days in my prayer life. You do too. Okay. <laughs> um, but anyway, so praying our experience. So it's in retrospect, and, and it's, it, it, it encourages you to look back on the, the things that you might even not consider very holy, like making breakfast or uh, having an argument or taking a shower or uh, working in the garden, whatever it is, riding your bike, and, 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 and asking yourself, like reflecting back and saying, like, where was Jesus in that moment? Um, where is he, you know, while you sleep and while you are up in the middle of the night with stress-induced insomnia? Uh, he's with you when you're cooking and cleaning and working and driving. 
He's with you on walks and bike rides and when you're playing and when you're joking and when you're vibing to your favorite song. Uh, When you're overly serious and stressed, he's with you in that as well. Uh, He's with you when you do well. He's with you when you sin and fail. And that's one I would want to dig down on with you. It's one I'm working on myself. I'm a person who likes to present my best side to God. It has been revelatory for me to sit with my sin in those areas where I have failed and to say, Jesus, why? Why did I choose that? Why was I feeling defensive there? Why did I choose to raise my voice there? Why did I feel out of control there? It's been amazing. Like, Jesus never condemns me, but he shows me things about myself. As we reflect on our experiences, we prayerfully consider with Jesus, what was it that made me experience joy in that song I was vibing to or in that really cool annular eclipse or whatever it is? What was it that made me succumb to temptation? How were you with me, Jesus, loving me even when I failed in a relationship or cut corners at work or simply failed to live up to who I wish I were? As we pray our experiences, see, we come to see that everything in life fits. Every, there's a place for everything in your life. Sometimes we think like, oh, this Christian life, only certain things fit, like worshipy things fit and prayer fits and service fits. Uh, when I do well, it fits. When I repent of my sin, it fits. But everything fits. The silly shows that you like on TV, they fit Marcus, it fits when you go to like the punk rock show down in the South. It fits. There's a place for that. And it's good, right? It's like there's a place for everything in our life to fit together. Jesus isn't just um, for us when there's something that we've got to think about, but uh, he's there with us in all of our experiences. What good news, right? Like the God of all things knows you and knows me loves me and loves you, cares about the small things and doesn't forsake us when we fail. That's a message that we need to keep on, not just hearing, but receiving and practicing. And what I'm finding is that when I'm reflecting backwards on how Jesus is with me and my experiences, I'm becoming more aware of how he's with me now. I mean, it's just like a fun inside. Like, I'm actually aware of Jesus with me now in this preaching moment. Loving me, covering my foibles and misspoken words. And I've already made mistakes that I know that I will normally be kept up over. um, Because I'm a perfectionist and hard on myself. But Jesus is with me, loving me, carrying me. That's not even a place I was four months ago. So... I I just offer it to you as something. And if you want to grow in this, it's something we've been practicing in school of prayer on Mondays at 10. Uh, We took a couple weeks off from it, but tomorrow I'm going to do it again in case you want to come and just say, what is this thing about? I kind of want to live into it a little bit. Um, I'll give you a handout. We'll walk through it. And that's, that's one way you can grow in this technique. Okay. I really just wanted to share that out of the Jonah text. This, what I see so loud and clear is this, Jonah's living in the world of ideas. And we in the West, the Western church, we live in the realm of ideas. Most of our Christian education, most of our sermons are information, right? Uh, we love information. I love information. 
but sometimes we're light on the transformation, and that's where the practice comes in. We've got to practice our faith. So I want to encourage you there. Two more points from this text tonight, um, and they're important, but they're brief, so I'm just going to go for it. In the story, Jonah, whose name, by the way, literally means dove in Hebrew, which is a symbol for peace, and also the dove is a symbol for Israel in Hebrew scripture. So you've got Jonah, whose name means peace, and he's representing Israel. Jonah is really the opposite of those things in this story. Um, he cares more about himself than making peace in the world. Israel, if his name means Israel, Israel is called to be a light to the nations, but Jonah deeply desires that the nations be left in darkness. He does not want Nineveh to repent. And he doesn't really seem to care about the sailors too much either in the beginning. Right? Um, Jonah knows that the storm is all his fault, but he doesn't even have the courage to jump overboard himself. Do you notice that? He tells them to throw him over. Like, he, he's basically making them complicit in his murder. Uh, suicide at best, murder is really what it is. Um, and yet, by the grace of God, this reluctant, reluctant act of substitution, his life for theirs, is enough to rescue the ship and the crew. And in an amazing grace, God also rescues Jonah and gives him a second chance and a new life. In theological terms, Jonah is a type of Christ. He foreshadows the work of Christ on the cross Alma read from Mark 4 earlier uh, where we heard the story of Jesus and his crew on a ship uh, or a boat in a storm. Like Jonah, Jesus is asleep in the storm. Like the pagan sailors, Jesus' disciples go to him, wake him up like, what are we going to do, man? Like, we're dying here. Uh, they're terrified. Quite unlike Jonah, who is running from his responsibility to preach a message of God to the Gentiles, Jesus is heading toward Gentile-occupied territory, where he's going to, in the next scene, release a, a pagan man filled with demons, and he's going to release him and set him free in the name of God. Unlike Jonah, whose reluctant suicide attempt to run from the will of God, Jesus willingly went to the cross, giving himself not only to save a boat full of his disciples, but to save every person who will ever live. To redeem all of creation from the fate of death and decay, to rescue us from sin and shame, to bring us out of the shadows of oppression, uh, whether that's self-inflicted or inflicted upon us by other people, and into the glorious light of salvation. Jonah points us ever so clearly to Jesus and his atoning death on our behalf, and that is the gospel in a nutshell. It is really good news. Straight out of this crazy, wacky, prophetic book, Jonah, four chapters long. This is some good stuff. As I bring this message to a close, I want to invite Elizabeth and Marcus and Rob up to the stage. Um, and I'm going to close with a third observation. You know, there's another aspect to practicing our faith that this story in Jonah communicates to us. When Jonah is tossed into the sea and God calms the storm, the sailors are more terrified in that moment than they were of the storm. It's really interesting in the Hebrew text there. 
They're not necessarily terrified that they're going to die. The storm is all calm. But they're terrified at the awesome wonder that Yahweh is powerful and sovereign over the chaos waters of the sea itself and that he seems to be good. Lots of people bargain with God when they're in trouble. They call that a foxhole confession, right? I'm in trouble. God, if you just get me out of this jam, I'll give my life to you. I'll follow you. And a lot of times, and this is probably true for us sometimes, right? Like you get out of the jam and it's like, oh, everything's chill now, God. You're not really going to hold me to that. But these pagan sailors, now free from the danger of the storm, now is the time that they offer a sacrifice to Yahweh. They worship him. They make vows. You know what that means is that they vowed their lives to him. They made vows to him. When we come to grips with who God is and what he's done, practicing our faith ought to lead us to worship. And that's how I'd like to end this sermon, is to worship together. around.